Well, we're back in 2 Kings this morning. And as we've seen in the book of 2 Kings so far, we're in a period of history where God's people have split apart into two separate nations. This was never God's desire. This was never his plan. His desire as he prayed in John 17 for all of his disciples and all those who would follow after him is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Second Kings is a book that reveals a condition of God's people that is about as far away from that as you could get. Because of their waywardness, because of their stubbornness, because of their idol worship, they have now split into two nations. They're fighting each other. It kind of sounds like your family some weeks, doesn't it? Well, there they were. One nation to the north. I brought a little map here just to remind you again. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. We can see Israel is in the blue part in the north. The capital is Samaria. Judea is in the south. Capital is Jerusalem. And during this time of the divided kingdom, there were many, many kings who ruled in both the the north and in the south, in Israel and in Judah. If we go to that next slide, I put together a list of all these kings. There's no way you can absorb all of that in just a few seconds here, but I wanted you to see the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and to give you some kind of idea of where we are now in chapter 12, um, the next slide will show you, kind of focus in on where we were last week. We looked at um, Athaliah, we looked at Joaz for the uh, the last two weeks, actually. And then if we go to the the next slide, you see that uh, these are the kings of Judah. And today in chapter 13, we're going to be focusing on Joash, also called Jehoash in the Bible. As I mentioned to you last week, it's kind of like Tim and Timothy, Sue and Susan. Same person, just a different way to call their name. And as I said, the book of 2 Kings gets pretty confusing from this point on. Last week, we were looking at a guy, a king named Joash over in the other column. And today, we're looking at another guy named Joash, a different king, different part of the country, but I just wanted you to see that. Now also, as just maybe a point of interest, archaeologists have excavated that area, and they have uncovered all kinds of things from Samaria where these events would take place. Uh, They found a large palace, they found a theater, they found that uh, stone there with engravings to Joash of Samaria, and it's referring to the king that we're going to spend some time looking at today. And, you know, once again, archaeology continues to prove the Bible right. It just takes some time. For decades, um, skeptics said that the city of Nineveh was just a fictional city, that it never existed. And now you can go into the British Museum and you can see the huge sculptors that stood outside the city of Nineveh because they did find it. And archaeology will just continue to prove the Bible right as time goes by. So today, we're looking at King Joash, King Jehoash, and he had a father whose name was Jehoahaz. I told you like two weeks ago, this gets just painfully confusing. There's some in here I'm not even going to try to pronounce in a few weeks, but uh, maybe I'll get one of you to give it a shot. So Joash's father was King Jehoahaz, and we're told something about him in Scripture that well, actually, look at verse 7, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 7. Here's what it says. Jehoahaz, who was Joash's father, had no army left except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 
and 10,000 foot soldiers because the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So this is bad news. This is really bad news for the land. Horses and chariots, as I mentioned a while back, represented the strength of a nation. And Syria has come in once again, and they've completely destroyed the military. So after King Jehoahaz died, Joash's son takes the throne, and unfortunately he inherits this crippled army. Uh, His nation is now like a sitting duck, just waiting to be attacked, waiting to be conquered, and to make matters worse, Syria is once again, at this time in history, getting ready to attack them. So Israel is in a really bad state. That's the setting that we step into this morning. And as we read through this chapter, uh, chapter 13 of 2 Kings, suddenly an old, long-lost friend reappears. Elisha makes an appearance. We haven't heard anything at all about Elisha since way back in chapter 9. And as we see him again now, here's how we find him. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Now Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. We remember from a few months back when we were looking at Elijah, who was Elisha's mentor, his spiritual teacher and father, We remember how God took Elijah up into heaven. Rather than him dying, we remember that God sent down chariots and horses of fire. There was a whirlwind, and Elijah was miraculously taken up into heaven. He didn't even have to die. But now, here's Elisha, who has also served God just as faithfully all these years. But he doesn't get to go off to heaven in an impressive display of power? No, instead we find him lying on a bed, dying of an illness. Can I just interject this quickly? This is not the focus of the message, but we need to be very, very careful not to say, God, why isn't my life turning out like theirs? I'm serving you just as much as they are. It's not fair, God. We need to be very careful. Shall the clay say to the potter, why have you formed me this way? Why is my life going this way, God? Jesus had to lovingly rebuke and remind Peter of this. In John chapter 21, I don't have verses for this, but we know the story well. Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast for the disciples. They're sitting around the fire. They finish breakfast. And Jesus takes Peter off for a walk by himself to have that epic moment with him where he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And then he says, feed my sheep. I've got work for you to do. Now, we know that Jesus didn't do that in front of the other disciples and embarrass Peter because in that account, we're told right near the very end that Peter turned around and saw John following them. So you see the the tenderness of Jesus. He didn't rebuke Peter in front of all his buddies. He said, hey, let's, let's take a walk. And so as they're walking down the, the beach, Peter turns and he, he sees John. And right before that happened, Jesus had told Peter the kind of death he was going to die. And Peter turns and points to John. He says, what about him? And Jesus speaks these remarkable words. He said, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. 
Now, there's a sermon in itself right there. Peter, you got your eyes on the wrong person. Don't compare yourself with him. I may do something, and I will do something completely different in his life that I won't do in yours. It's no better. It's no worse. It's just my plan. Get your eyes off of him and just follow me. We need to keep our eyes on what God has called us to do in this life and not waste our time comparing ourselves with other people. The Bible says comparing yourselves among yourselves is not wise. We shouldn't do it. As far as I can tell, there's only one of two outcomes that can occur when I compare myself with someone else. It's either going to be pride, because I think I'm better than them, or it's going to be discouragement, because I think I'm worse than them. So if you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to Jesus all the time. That's our goal. That's what we're striving for. Well, as I said, Elisha hadn't been mentioned one time in the Bible since all the way back in chapter 9. And you go, well, that's not, it's not that far, just a few chapters. But what we need to know is 50 years have gone by since then. Nearly 50 years. For a while there, man, we saw one amazing thing after another in, in the life of Elisha. He parted the Jordan River. He raised the Shunammite woman's son back to life. He healed diseases. He fed multitudes. He was part of Naaman's cure for leprosy. And then without warning, he disappears from the pages of Scripture. Time goes by. King after king after king rises and falls. Wars come and go. People are born. People die. And during all that time, we're told nothing about Elisha. Fifty years with no accolades. Fifty years with no report whatsoever of what he's doing. Fifty years out of the spotlight. But even after all that time, we find Elisha still being faithful to God. Even now, on his deathbed, he's still serving the Lord. He's, he's still a man of great faith, and he's still pointing others to God, as we're about to see. You know, unlike the king we saw last week, who only did what was right in the eyes of the Lord while his mentor was alive. And as soon as he died, he went off the rails. He abandoned God, abandoned the temple, went back to idol worship. Unlike that, Elisha served God faithfully to the very end, even after 50 years in the shadows. Listen, you won't always be given credit for what you do for the Lord. I bet you could make a list of things you've done in your life that you never got credit for. You never got thanked for. In fact, no one even noticed. Maybe you could recall times when you got up in the middle of the night to go help somebody, but they wouldn't even roll over to help you. Maybe you poured your life into raising your child in the ways of the Lord, but they grew up and they turned away from God. Maybe you've spent countless hours serving others out of your love for God, and it seems that all you've gotten out of it is heartache. Elisha had been faithful for 50 years, even after being lied about, even after being attacked, even after being hated. Folks, you can't serve God for the accolades. You have to do it out of your sheer love for him. Paul tells us in Corinthians Christ died for all, 
so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. I would just tell you, if you get into any kind of service for the Lord here in this church or elsewhere, and you're doing it in hopes of getting the praise of men, you're going to burn out very quickly. And your, life, your spiritual life is going to be a roller coaster, up one day and down the next. Because I will tell you this, in life and even in Christian circles, sometimes the same people who praise you today will curse you tomorrow. That's a sad truth. Elisha is now on his deathbed. He's been faithful all these years, and we pick up in verse 14. Elisha had become sick with an illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Let me pause right there. Some translations get this wrong. This doesn't just say he wept for Elisha. The Hebrew literally says he wept over his face. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase used in Genesis 1 when it says, darkness was over the face of the deep. The picture here is that this king, this man of royalty and power, makes a trip to come and see this lowly prophet of God in his home, on his deathbed, near the end of his life. And he doesn't just stand a distance away, wiping his eyes with a Kleenex. It's a picture of him laying himself over Elisha, putting his arms around him, sort of scooping him up to himself, and either his forehead is on Elisha's forehead or maybe cheek to cheek, but they're about as close as they can be, and this king is weeping, and his tears are falling onto the face of Elisha. What an extraordinary moment this was. What a picture this is. And as Joash is grieving over the fact that Elisha is about to die, he said this strange phrase, maybe it'll ring a bell from something a few weeks back. Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. That's the same phrase, by the way, that Elisha said when Elijah was being taken up into heaven. So why in the world, though, would King Joash refer to this prophet of God as his father? We're told that Joash was not a godly man. He didn't serve the Lord, but he was clearly moved by the sight of this prophet dying. He couldn't help but acknowledge Elisha's true worth to the nation. In those words, Joash is not only expressing his personal grief about Elisha dying, he's also expressing the grief of the nation. He's recognizing the loss to his country. King Joash was well aware of the fact that on numerous occasions, Elisha had been the one who had helped Israel win battles against their enemies, even against the greatest odds. If Elisha was involved, if Elisha called on God, Israel won their battles. Don't tell me that Joash doesn't have this in mind. As he hears the clanging of armor from Syria coming at him again, he looks at this pitiful army that's been left to him by his father. He knows he doesn't stand a chance. They're reduced to 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. And 
10,000 soldiers. That sounds like a lot until you read some of the earlier accounts where the enemy came against them, surrounded Samaria, and covered the country, it says. And as Joash cries out to this prophet of God lying there near death, he's admitting that God, through Elisha, has been the real protection of Israel. He recognizes that. He clearly recognized the the vulnerable position that they would now be in without Elisha, especially with Syria coming at them. So he runs to Elisha, no doubt hoping that Elisha would call on God one more time and rescue them from this enemy. And, And isn't that always the case? Men and women still go about their lives day after day, No recognition of God, no gratitude for his provision and his protection until trouble comes, and then they run to God for help. That's why all the churches in America were packed to overflowing the Sunday after 9-11. You notice they didn't run to the Satanists. I mean, before 9-11, people in America, they were so arrogant and relaxed and distant from God. But boy, when those towers fell... It was a different story. They were in trouble now. They were terrified now, and the one that they knew they needed to run to was God. As as this ungodly King Joash was, was still ruling the land as a young man here, facing this threat, he still saw power in Elisha that he knew he didn't have in himself. He knew where to run when trouble came. And you know, that's, that's the kind of life that you and I need to live. A life where God's presence is so evident, where God's power is so visible through us that the lost around us would run to us when they're looking for God. What a wonderful thing that would be. That even after we're gone, we would leave a godly legacy behind. Charles Spurgeon said this, Let us seek to live in such a way that even ungodly men may miss us when we're gone. I can't help but think of Sandy's dad, who died way, way too early, my human opinion. He was a man who was racked with pain his entire adult life, crippling pain. And yet I never remember seeing him once without a genuine smile of joy on his face. He lived to serve everybody. He was a VP of a company. He didn't have to do that. But I mean, I've seen, I saw him once on a rainy day, pouring rain, stopped his car and got out to go help a guy change a flat tire. And he was just laughing and smiling the whole way. I thought, this guy's a nut. I've married into a psychotic family. What in the world? But you know, the more I spent time with him, the more I watched him in everyday life, not here. You understand how easy it is to be a Christian here? Really easy. What matters is out there. And, and I would watch him for years and years. I watched him and spent time with him, and I saw Christ in him. I saw Christ living through him. I saw people who were drawn to Christ in him, that light that was shining out of him, people were drawn to him to want to know what this was all about. And at his funeral, at the reception, whatever they call it, the receiving of friends, 
Uh, it was well into the night, and people were still lined up through the building, down the sidewalk, down the road. And they had to cut it off and say, we have to close. You see, he was a simple, humble man who wore, you know, $5 Walmart shirts. Drove an old, beat-up car, just as plain as he could be. But man, was he magnetic. He drew people to Christ through just living his everyday life, through just changing a flat tire, through hanging off the roof with me one day, helping me change my shutters, because I'm so brilliant at all that stuff. I can't do any of that. I can turn a screwdriver now. I'm getting better. <laughs> but there he was with his crippling arthritis, you know, hobbling up that roof to help me, and just smiling, talking about the Lord. And you know what? Here's the thing. Norva's been dead now for, oh... Decades, and people still talk about him. I'm talking about him right now. I tell you, there's a list of people I would never talk about. They're gone. I have no desire to talk about them. But Norva Spitzer, he was a man of God. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a missionary. He was an electrician. But he was a man of God. And long after he died, his testimony still lives on. Well, Elisha now does something that seems really strange at first. Verses 15 and 16. Elisha said to the king, take a bow and arrows. Uh, by the way, the, the way this is written is really, really interesting in the Hebrew because we don't really talk like this, but it's written in sort of this staccato fashion. And it's like the king is now snapping to attention at everything Elisha says. Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Now, this is an odd passage of Scripture. People tend to avoid this like the plague. It's really quite simple. There was nothing magical or supernatural about these arrows. This was a simple object lesson that God is using through Elisha to illustrate the victory that God wanted to bring to Israel. It was a common thing in that culture in that day to use object lessons to sort of act things out as a sign of what God was about to do. When the, Samuel prophet, uh, the prophet Samuel rebuked King Saul, and he turned to walk away, Saul reached out and grabbed the edge of Samuel's robe, and it tore. And Samuel spun around, and he said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day. God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute as a living object lesson of how his people were treating him. Whew, I didn't get that call. There was a man in the New Testament named Agabus. I keep calling him Abacus, but that's, that's not right. It's Agabus. He took Paul's belt one time and he tied up his own feet and his hands with it as an object lesson to show what the Jews were going to do to Paul. And here in 2 Kings, Elisha takes the king through this object lesson, and he, he puts his hands on the king's hands, and they shot that first arrow together. 
And then Elisha explains what this means. He said to him, these arrows represent the Lord's deliverance from Syria. Now, perhaps by putting his hands on the king's hands, Elisha was maybe signifying, I don't know, but possibly signifying that since he was God's representative, it was God who was going to be the one directing them in battle, and it, would, it was God who would be the one who would give them the victory and guide their hands, guide them through this. And Elisha explained to the king exactly what these arrows represented. You see, in this day, firing an arrow in the, direction, in the general direction of your enemy was a declaration of war. So this was not just a random thing they did. This was very clear to the king what this meant. And after they shot that first arrow together, Elisha then tells the king to take the rest of the arrows and shoot them himself. Now watch this, verse 18. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. Like this king has just fallen in line to this old prophet. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him. The King James says, wroth. I love that. He was wroth with him. You see, this old man still has the fire in his bones. He's still got the power of God in him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Now, it's a bit confusing in English. When he says, take the arrows and strike the ground, he's not saying, bundle up the arrows and hit the ground with it. What he means is, when he says, strike the ground, is he's saying, shoot more arrows until they strike the ground. So we're going to, because he had made it very clear, shooting an arrow meant victory. It was a sign of victory. So Elisha was saying, shoot as many arrows as you want. In other words, take as many victories as you want. I mean, this is like an open door invitation for this king. Elisha wanted to see how many arrows the king would shoot on his own to gain victory over the Syrians. But the king only shot three out of all the arrows that he had. Wouldn't you think that after hearing what Elisha said, that these arrows represent victory from God, wouldn't you think that the king would have kept shooting one arrow after another and then called for some people, bring me more arrows, quick, I'm going to keep shooting all day. But instead, he stopped short of using all the tools that God had given to him, so he never saw all that God wanted to do through him. He simply didn't believe that firing arrows in private would lead to victory in public. And so he left arrows in his quiver, unused weapons of the Lord. He left them there, untouched. And I wonder how often we've done the same. You've prayed over and over and over for someone. And when you bow your head to pray again, a voice says, you're wasting your time. Just stop. And so you put your arrow back in your quiver. You've shared Christ with that neighbor or person at work or family member who always shuts you down, who always rejects you, who always has a comeback for everything you say. And you say to yourself, why even bother? It's of no use. And you put your arrow back in your quiver. I can't help but wonder. As I was working through this the last few weeks, man, this just hit me so hard. 
I can't help but wonder over the course of our lives how many spiritual arrows we've left unused in our quiver. How many promises of God have we failed to believe? How many steps of faith have we failed to take? They've been given to us, but we've just left them in the quiver. And as a result, we never saw the victory. We never saw the deliverance that God had prepared for us. God said to King Joash through Elisha, because you stopped short, so too your victories are going to be cut short. Total victory was right there within his reach, but he didn't use it. I wonder, is there any area of obedience in your life that God has called you to that you've stopped short of completing? Are there any steps of faith that you still haven't taken? Is there any work for God that you've left unfinished? Folks, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I left arrows of faith in my quiver. I want to be able to know that I used everything God put at my disposal, that I left nothing on the table. Well, I need to move on. After Elisha's extraordinary life of faith, we read this incredibly unextraordinary sentence. Verse 20, and Elisha died and they buried him. Wow. I mean, where's the fanfare? Where's the parade? Where are the speeches? This man of God, one of the most powerful prophets who ever walked the earth, he lived his life against all opposition, remaining faithful to God to the very end, and he died and they buried him. I don't want to sound morbid, but can I remind you today that that day is coming for all of us. For all of us. People, it's just amazing people don't like to think about death. Oh no, I don't want to talk about that. I can just tell you there will be a day when a pastor stands up and addresses your family and friends at your funeral. And here will call to everyone what you lived your life for. See, that's what funeral services do. They sum up a person's life. The pastor highlights and he celebrates that person's accomplishments and achievements and he recounts what that person was known for. But listen, what, what you will be known for won't just be remembered at your funeral. That's what people will remember years after you're gone. So I think maybe now is a fair time to ask, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? Because your funeral is going to be too late to think about that. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? You go, well, that's down the road. Well, here, here's what you need to know. You are actually already writing your legacy now. Every day that you live, every choice that you make, every word that you speak, you're adding another chapter to your legacy. Your legacy begins now not when you retire, not some better day. It's happening now. Elisha spent his life living by faith in God and calling others to faith in God. And the life of faith that he lived built a legacy of faith that continued on long after he died. We wind it down with these verses. Watch what happens here. Verse 20. And Elisha died and they buried him. 
And you would just think there would be something comforting and sweet and memorable that comes in the next sentence. But it says, and the raiding bands of the Moabites invaded the land in the spring of the year. That's such a bizarre sentence to me, the spring of the year. It's like, oh, honey, look, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, it's beautiful outside, let's go to war. That's what they did. Verse 21, and as they were burying a man, suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they threw the man into the tomb of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. That's quite a funeral service. <laughs> I've never been to one like that. I'm maybe ashamed to say if that happened, I'd be the first one to make a hole in the wall. And <laughs> there was a big old snake at a wedding just recently, right, John? <laughs> Glad I didn't see that till after the service. But I've never seen a funeral service like this. You know, this, this man is being carried out to be buried. And the people who are carrying him saw this band of Moabites coming to attack them. They panicked and they did the obvious thing. They threw the guy in a tomb. You know, back then, tombs were usually carved out of a, a mountainside, out of a hill or stone. And, and so this would have been just like an open tomb. They grab the guy, they, they chuck him in the tomb, and off they go. Well, the King James says cast. They cast him in. They... <laughs> They literally threw him in. And it happened to be Elisha's tomb. Now, we're not told, but this must have been some, quite some time after Elisha's death, because it says as soon as the man's body touched the bones of Elisha, the man came back to life. See, even after Elisha was dead, God used his legacy of faith to bring someone back to life. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I'm thankful that when Christ died, his bones are not still in the tomb, but we can still find life through his death. Now, unfortunately, the sad part of this story is that poor man had to die again. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm glad that there's something so much better than physical life, and that's spiritual life. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the tomb, he was declaring loud and clear the words of John 11, 25, and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he added this. Do you believe this? Man, that's a powerful question. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus took our sin and died in our place so that we could be forgiven and live forever. And if you live your life as a testimony of that, then your legacy of faith can continue to bring spiritual life to others even after you're gone. I've seen unsaved family and friends come to Christ at a funeral all because of the testimony that that dead person left behind. Dead men do talk, very loudly, as a matter of fact. I want to tell you this morning, your testimony can live on and bring others to salvation even after you're gone. 
I want to put this one last thing on the screens because I want you to see this. Here's what I would say to you today. The end of your life does not have to be the end of the impact your life will have. The end of your life does not have to be the end of the impact your life will have. But it all depends on what you're choosing to live for today. What a testimony Elisha left. What a testimony Norva Spitzer left. Is your name going to be filled into a sentence like that? Is mine? With God's help, may we all remain committed to a life of faith so that we can pass on a legacy of faith to those who come after us. And may we die with no arrows left in our quiver, knowing that we held nothing back in our walk with him. I pray that would be true for all of us. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see